With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. There have been questions and, and concerns about this, but there is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. Again, there is no indication of aliens or terrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. Wanted to make sure that the American people knew that, all of you knew that, uh, and it was important for us to say that from here because we've been hearing a lot about it. Well, now we know it's true. They are aliens. I'm relieved, honestly, because it's been keeping me up at night. Uh, I expect, uh, Murphy, that uh, that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene will hold hearings on the veracity of this. Uh, <laughs> she, she being worked up about illegal aliens and, and space lasers and all of that we, we stuff. We need a space border now, although I'm not convinced. Until I see wreckage. <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 open to the alien thing it might be an improvement we turn into a global singapore speaking of aliens you know we have here we have yoda oh yes y- yoda steve israel the the wise man on politics he's who, who we go to when we have these complicated political questions former congressman former chair of the DCCC, now a noted author and also bookseller he writes them, he sells them, he touches everybody. He's the proprietor of the great Theodore's bookstore on Long Island, one of our two very favorites, along with Midtown Reader down in Tallahassee. Both wonderful bookstores started by people who'd had enough of politics, although they can't really get out of it. Right, maybe we should <laughs> Welcome, let him say hello. Steve. Hey there, Steve. Hey, great to be on with you guys. Happy 200th anniversary. Oh, your can you believe episode. it? 200th show, yeah, I this know. This is it. Thank you, thank you, adoring nation. You know when when I hooked up with Some Murphy, a lot of people said they'll never last that long. That the, <laughs> this couple is not going to last. But here we are, the two hundredth show. Yeah, um, we've outlasted Martin and Lewis. That was our big goal. <laughs> so here we are. You can't get rid of us. Exactly. Yang, uh, yang, yang. So, uh, speaking of, we, let's just dispose of this quickly. How, the, now the White House said this morning that the things they shot down over the weekend, and, you know, it was like a video game. They were shooting objects down all over the place, uh, were probably commercial and benign. Uh, Steve, I assume that your friends in Congress aren't done with all of this, the China balloon, all of this. What, what, what's the politics of, of all of this? Well, yeah, I've talked to my former colleagues on on both sides, um, and you know the Republican playbook has always been uh, to uh, make people feel a little vulnerable, uh, whether it's illegal aliens crossing the border or now illegal aliens uh, coming from outer space. I will say this: there's a reason um, for the increased uh, number of sightings, and that is that President Biden ordered the military uh, to adjust its filters so that exactly, it was picking up more exactly so that it was picking up more objects and so now you know every little errant piece of dust uh, coming across the border uh, it might be a reason to scramble some some uh, F18s and so we should expect more of these but you know you guys know this is going to be uh, one hearing after another uh, and uh, you know my my republican friends in congress will do everything they can to kind of project the sense uh, that this is a national security vulnerability. It is not. Yeah, I my view is I have not criticized Biden on the original Chinese balloon. I thought he handled it prudently. I think the only mistake was they should have sent Blinken over there and he could have presented the Chinese foreign minister with an ashtray made out of the charred remains of the original balloon as a <laughs> little callback to the hunt uh, for Red October. What, you've lost another balloon there, Mr. Wang? 
you're right. They changed the aperture in NORAD. Yikes, there's a lot of stuff up there. Some of it we're going to find out is the those the Frat brothers bought a $900 weather balloon and let it go, and it got to 20,000 feet. But, you know, let's wait for the wreckage and find out. We we do know what we don't what we know now is the Chinese have a very aggressive global program for yeah. surveillance balloons, and it, it it's part of the growing tensions there. And I think the eyes will be on how Biden handles this tension without bad silly unstrategic escalation so so far so good but the congress of course will make noise they do that no matter what topic it is that's the the core the core of this that is serious is what the chinese were up to um i agree with you on biden's handling of it i think the, the thing that chinese balloons have in common with politicians is lots of hot air and we heard a lot of it around that but it is a serious thing. And, you know, we are at a very fraught time with China, which is why Blinken was going over there. They are a serious uh, both competitor and a- antagonist in some ways. And how you balance that is is pretty important. Uh, and it comes at a time when both parties are very, very uh, torqued up with anti-Chinese sentiment. So, uh, being responsible and trying to manage this relationship isn't necessarily the best politics uh, because people are very much in the mind that we need to take it to China in every way we can. Uh, Steve, it seems to me Biden is trying to balance it responsibly, but that's not necessarily great for his politics. No, it may not be great for his politics. But by the way, this kind of interaction is nothing new and has been managed responsibly uh, by past administrations. I mean, you guys will remember that it wasn't very long ago that a Chinese plane came within 30 feet of a U.S. surveillance plane. It hadn't violated China's territorial uh, sovereignty, uh, but it was close. Uh, and uh, that was very dangerous and very pr- provocative. The United States and China quietly worked that out. They realized that an escalation was not in the interests of either country or, or global stability, and they worked it out. And so, um, you know, not to uh, speak, uh, not, not to take advantage of a, of a metaphor, but just as these balloons are passing over, my sense is that this will be handled in an appropriate way and that this issue will pass over before very long. Yeah, the only thing I'd say is that the Chinese are making it harder because their right hand doesn't always know what their left balloon is doing. And, you know, they're mad about the Philippine base agreement. So what did they do? They sent out one of their, I believe, frigates and started trying out lasers on the on a Filipino warship and blinding people. So they keep pushing. And that that is an escalatory plan and it's trouble. The challenge is how do you how do you set boundaries that they will respect? And that's what Blinken that's his mission when he goes over there. But let me just say parenthetically, I'm always excited when uh, a guy named Israel makes Passover references on our <laughs> on our podcast. That's my shtick, buddy. Uh, yeah, we're filling our own balloon now. Let's <laughs> move to the next. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, no, no. I want to just talk about you guys. You guys are both. This is a subject of importance to both you guys because you're both approaching the magic age when you'll be uh, when you'll be eligible for Social Security. But you're both uh, approaching that age. And this is this becoming a big issue again, in part because of what Biden did at the uh, State of the Union last week. But he also took that on the road. Let's hit the uh, his comments down in in Florida. Now, you may have seen we had a little bit of a spirit debate at the State of the Union. (laughs) I. uh, well, I guess I shouldn't say anymore. But we, particularly in Social Security and Medicare, Republicans seemed shocked when I took out the pamphlets they were using about cutting Medicare and Social Security. Read from, you know, Senator Scott's proposal. Read from the proposal from the senator from Wisconsin. They were offended. Liar, liar. I reminded them that Florida's own Rick Scott is the guy who ran the Senate campaign committee for Republicans last year, had a plan to sunset. Maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe he's seen the Lord. But, <laughs> but he, he wanted a sunset, meaning if you don't reauthorize it, it goes away. Sunset Social Security and Medicare every five years. Now, it's not likely to get voted out, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you what. It's likely it got cut drastically. You had to do it every five years. 
Steve Israel, you are a veteran of many campaigns and many fights over Social Security and Medicare. How much legs does this have in the election? Because Republicans, you know, they, uh, you know, they, they completely ran from it uh, when Biden raised it. But there have been a lot of these fights, uh, you know, dating back like half a century 70, 80 years. Does this, is this thing going to go on? Is this thing going to be a factor in uh, the future or is this a transient event? No, I think Democrats very much want to uh, contest the next election on their turf and Social Security and Medicare is on their turf. This is third rail politics. And David, you will remember, I'm sure, uh, with great sentimentality uh, that in 2000, after the 2004 election, President Bush, after yes. he won, yes. What did he say? I have political capital. I'm going to spend it. And on what? On the privatization of Social Security. That created a narrative that Democrats exploited. It was an early narrative. Bush had to pedal back from that. But he was trying to fight a battle on Democratic turf. It set the stage uh, for this guy named Barack Obama uh, to become president. Whenever the Republicans try and touch Medicare and Social Security, it inures to the benefit of Democrats. And I will say one other thing. I was chairman of the DCCC when uh, Paul Ryan ran for vice president. And I told the Democrats as soon as he was selected, I said, all right, our messaging uh, in 2012 uh, will be three words. In order of priority, alphabetically, Medicare, Medicare, and Medicare. Those are the three things I want House candidates to be talking about. And it was effective because Wait, the Ryan those all start budget, with the those all start with the same letter. That's right. Anyway, okay, that's, that's why it was so easy. Yeah, that's yeah. why it was so easy. Um, and I mean, we just stayed with that message. Uh, and in 2012, we clawed back eight House seats, partially because we were on message on Medicare. Murphy, what say you? It was a cheap shot by Biden, but it was very politically effective because people don't want to debate about Social Security. They want a blank check. And if the system ever runs out of money, they want somebody to blame. So the problem is, just for our listeners, a couple of Republican senators led by Rick Scott, who, as you said, ran the uh, the campaign committee to horrible reviews. He then went on to try to dethrone Mitch McConnell and got smacked down and thrown off the key committees. He had a plan, and I'll try to be charitable, to deal with the massive budget problems we have in our huge national debt and growing higher than World War II right now. He had a plan to basically sunset everything and then rebuild the ones we need because you start a program now, Washington, it never goes away for a thousand years. So that, of course, turned into a Biden charge of the Republicans taking Scott and Mike Lee and a few others' position and gluing it to the entire party, want to get rid of Social Security forever, which is not really. That's why they all went nuts on the floor. And then the, the bleacher bum Republicans took over and started screaming. And the optics of it were great for Biden. The politics of it are great for Biden. But the fact is the Democrats demagogue Social Security like the Republicans demagogue the border. And the, the sad thing about all this, I mean, it's politics. I get it. But, and it works for the Dems. Steve is absolutely right. The, the problem is you cannot in American politics now say a single word about any kind of Social Security reform. Maybe we, we means test it. Maybe we raise the age a little. Remember, when the life expectancy was about 65 when it was founded. Now it's 90. So, you know, we have disincentivized anybody from Congress from even floating any legitimate idea to take a look at it other than write a bigger check. The only thing these guys will vote for is we'll have a commission to study having a commission because it's the only politically safe vote. And that's not good, I think. But as far as the politics, big win for the Dems, and they will pound this thing like a government mule for as long as there are votes in it. Doesn't it complicate things for Republicans that Donald Trump was on the don't touch Social Security and Medicare side of yes. the debate? Yeah. And they all went with him. Yeah. So, oh, no. I mean, <laughs> look, look, because before he... that, and Steve was there, there, this wasn't just one guy. This wasn't just one errant proposal uh, this was this was you know this was dogma within the republican party that for all the reasons that you said and uh you know one of the guys who who was an, a major exponent of it and steve will remember this because he stir, served with him was governor ron DeSantis of florida who's been strangely silent 
on this. And I, and I guess my question no, that, is, this is the new thing in D.C. too. And it, it's they discovered that DeSantis was a congressman and has all these bad votes, like Ryan did, bad politically. And now the the first the next car wash DeSantis is going through after the original wow he could be a challenger is now oh my God he you know the Democratic version of it he wants to destroy Social Security as soon as he can and it's a political problem for him it is a third rail but I guess my question for you guys is before he ever goes through the Democratic car wash isn't this the car wash isn't this one of the car washes that Trump is going to make him go through totally I mean look Trump is a populist so if people like it he's for it. I think we ought to double Social Security benefits and we're paid for it with waste, fraud, and abuse. I mean, that's where Trump will go. So, yeah, it, 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 the Sanders is in for a pound. I'm going to make a clip out of that last thing and say, Mike Murphy calls for doubling of uh, <laughs> of Social Security. That, that's where Bernie is because, you know, we do have a retirement crisis in the country. The system wasn't designed for long life expectancy and nobody has a pension anymore. But it gets wonky and we should avoid it. Let me remind everybody that, um, you know, this issue is not only a national play. I, I think it really becomes much more effective and salient in the electorate in uh, among senior voters in battleground presidential states. So this is if this is third rail nationally. It is even more electric if you're a senior citizen in Western Pennsylvania, a senior citizen in Florida, a senior citizen in Nevada, North Carolina, Michigan. This issue really does play uh, in an oversized way in those senior yeah, electorates the, and battleground presidential states. And those states. battleground yeah. states over-index on seniors, most of them. Yes. So, uh, But the other element of this uh, is that Joe Biden, who uh, you know I assume is running now, Joe Biden overperforms with older voters, underperforms with younger voters. So anything he can do to run up the score with older voters is something that he's going to want to pursue. Yeah, I'm waiting for the big line. I know Social Security. I get Social Security. <laughs> or I was there. When They're we, not taking when we my check away. Yeah, yeah, I was there with FDR when we signed it. So, yeah, it's all going to be back. The Dem ad with the Social Security card and the scissors. And it's bad politics for Republicans, but I think it's bad for our country. We cannot have an adult discussion about Social Security, at least now. I agree with a lot of what you said. That discussion should also include what can we do, what should we do to shore it up without cutting. Yeah. And so on. I mean, that that, that should be part of the discussion. too. But listen, on the subject of DeSantis... Uh, there was a piece in the Times yesterday about how basically mute he's been in the face of uh, attacks from Donald Trump. I think we have a little clip he was asking. Yeah, let's about listen. This. this is good. I spend my time delivering results for the people of Florida and fighting against Joe Biden. That's how I spend my time. I don't spend my time trying to smear other Republicans. So he'll smear Biden, but he won't smear other Republicans. I well, guess, of course. The, I mean, believe yeah. me, that, that's noble work. <laughs> but the thing is, how long can well, he? That's I mean, the all question. these Republicans yeah. are handling Trump like plutonium, right? Yeah. Because they're worried, not only they're, are they worried about what he'll say about them, they're also worried about, like, if you're DeSantis, he's thinking, I might win, and this guy could destroy me. Well, th this is the great experiment right now. We're going to see how tough DeSantis is because Trump's going to start beating the hell out of him or Governor DeSanctimonious, as Trump would put it. And he can do the above it all thing, but you can feel the boiling anger underneath it. And, you know, he's not exactly, you know, it's funny, a, a, a very shrewd, extremely talented uh, Republican friend of mine. I won't mention the name because I don't want to destroy their career, but said the most, I think, incisively brilliant thing about we had dinner the other night said, you know, I look at DeSantis, and this is a real conservative. I look at DeSantis, and there's no love in him at all. He's not the compassionate conservative. Right. For him to kind of float above it, how long he can sustain that when he's, when he's really a, an axe brawler at heart and a culture warrior, that's where some of his strength in the, in the base of the party is. Sure. It's going to be hard. And the minute Trump gets him to start responding, Trump is winning. So what will Trump do? Keep needling him and find yeah. that breaking point. So that, that, that is coming. Which is his preternatural gift. Exactly. Steve, you, you served with you served I did. With DeSantis. I, I had a very unhappy interaction with DeSantis, uh, DeSantis when he came to Congress. Um, my district in Long Island, New York, was just uh, completely shattered uh, by Superstorm Sandy. 
And Ron DeSantis, I think it was one of his first speeches, goes to the floor of the House and opposes federal emergency assistance uh, to New Yorkers. He said, we can't bail these people out. Fair enough. But when the hurricanes came to Florida, <laughs> right, he insisted exactly. on federal emergency assistance. Yeah. I mean, the hypocrisy was, you know, was a hurricane by itself. Say one other thing. I think with the Republican, they are going to struggle a little bit. The question is, how do you divorce Donald Trump and cuddle with him at the same time? That's going exactly. to be what this what this is all about. It's going to. It looks we like you could ask his ex ex wives. There are plenty of people you yeah, can yeah. ask. Right. It, it looks like this will be uh, potentially a crowded primary, and Donald Trump may not command the majority of Republicans right now, but he commands a plurality. So I'm thinking about those debate stages where Nikki Haley and, and Tim Scott and DeSantis, every time they want to criticize Trump, they have to calculate, does this mean I may not be his nominee for vice president if he wins that plurality? Uh, you know, I, so, so they're really threading a needle. How do you stay on his good side uh, while making a point? And finally, you know, look at Sarah Huckabee Sanders' response uh, to, the, to President Biden at the State of the Union. She talked expansively about her service in the Trump administration. And what a miracle. She didn't mention Donald Trump's name once, not once. It's yeah. actually in focus. They, this is going to be the test for these guys. They they want to divorce and cuddle at the same time. I think threading the needle can be a mistake because they're all just going to look like cloying politicians and Trump will give them nothing for it. They will get no reward. The thing to do is respect, be respectful of his term, but but be unambiguous about moving on. Whoever does that. And as a tone shift, that's why I think Tim Scott is by far the most interesting of these potential candidates. That'll be the magic thing. Because if you just are cloying, then you're defined by the cloying, not not anything new. And Trump will still smack you. Trump's going to smack anybody who's nominated, who runs, who's not named Donald Trump, no matter what they say. So Nikki Haley is announcing today, I think we have a clip of the video she released in advance of her announcement. Let's Let's give that a listen. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. I don't know who she's directing that to, whether it's Trump or uh, DeSantis or both, but uh, there's some kind of message there. Anyway, just out of curiosity, I looked up. Do you know she was born on... January 20th, 1972, the day Richard Nixon was sworn in for his second term, but also the year that Joe Biden ran, uh, was elected to the United States Senate. And I mean, we by the time this podcast airs, I could be proven wrong, but I would guess that there's going to be a whole lot of rhetoric about turning the page, new generation, looking forward. And her comments, certainly if Tim Scott runs and DeSantis as well. The, the, the generational card, and you heard Sarah Huckabee uh, Sanders play it, is going to play large. Oh, huge. You know, it's interesting. And I'm a critic of Nikki because I've dealt with her. Um, but she put out a kind of somebody on the on Twitter had a funny remark. This is the video that uh, chat GPT would make. You know, it's kind of a paint by numbers thing. But it, it talks about her leadership um, after the, the and a church violence there, which was good, but it doesn't mention her signature accomplishment, which was taking the flag down. That's been edited out of the video. It's back to Steve's point about taste great, less filling and, and trying to be both. And that's been Nikki's story. She's been a reformed conservative. She's been a diehard Trumper. She's been an anti-Trumper. I even put up a, uh, a tweet uh, with a contest, and I can give now a world exclusive of the poll results. I did a poll of Nikki Haley for president slogans. Choice one, Nikki Haley, whatever she needs to be. Number two, Haley, flexible leadership for inflexible times. And third, Nikki Haley, hoping you've never heard of Tim Scott. And it's a second-place tie between flexible leadership and inflexible times and hoping you've never heard of Tim Scott, but a whopping 60% of our poll are whatever she needs to be. And that brand is going to stick to her, and Trump's going to help stick it, and we're seeing. Now, do you think when she hears about this poll that she's going to embrace your slogan? Yeah, well, you know, knowing Nikki, if it works, she'd do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, believe me, it's uh, she adapts to the moment because the slogan that didn't make the poll was smart, courageous, ambitious, one out of three, not so bad. So there, that's my jihad of the week against Nikki Haley. Yeah, we'll man. see. On paper, she's got some upside. 
A lot of us never Trumpers have a special contempt for us because we know she knew better, but she didn't have the guts to do anything. Personally, she detested Trump, but just lacked any spine at all. And so special place in hell for people who knew better. Okay, then let's take a break right here and we'll be right back. You know, Axe, word on the street is you're running short of yes men. And you know me, I hire one every week. I like having them around. But in the modern era, in this economy, hiring good people is really, really hard. A lot of clumsy sites to get the wrong people. You waste a lot of time. But luckily, we have a great sponsor that can solve your problem. Yeah, if you're hiring, what do you need? You need Indeed. Indeed you do. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed's employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job descriptions the moment they sponsor a job, Murphy. It is a miracle of technology because like you, I hate waiting, but with Instant Match, which is my favorite part, bingo. It instantly matches you. And here's here's the cool part. There's science behind it. We know that candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times, three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in search. And that's according to the massive data they have at Indeed. This is really important. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. Join the over 3 million, million with an M, businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. In fact, at the Chinese Ministry of State Security, I'll bet you're looking for new PR people. Give Indeed (laughs) a trial. It'll solve your your match fast because you guys need some quality candidates. So I don't know how to say this in Chinese, but visit Indeed.com slash hacks to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash hacks. Indeed.com slash hacks. Terms and conditions do apply. Cost per application pricing is not available for anyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Can I ask you a question, you guys, Steve? You're a historian. You both are great uh, consumers of history. Does the fact that Ron DeSantis is five foot nine mean anything? There is this theory that stature matters. Uh, and um, I think you'd have to go back to, I think, Millard Fillmore. Well, Jimmy Carter in the modern Jimmy era. Carter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a thing where tall people are more likely to be president. Now, Phil Graham yeah. would dispute that that factor. So would Bill Bradley. But they tend to be taller than average. What uh, it doesn't mean that the tallest guy wins the primary. It means that in a general election, they tend to be not short. I don't know. We're going to get mail here. I did not bring this up. Send your angry letters to uh, uh, Israel and Axelrod. Yeah, is DeSantis of sufficient stature to be elected president? Well, he's That's so what pugilistic. We- I mean, I, I don't know. Nah, you know, as I think it through, it's a good question. As I think it through, you can compensate uh, in terms of uh, the thrust of, of, of your punches. And this guy knows how to throw punches. Not just a historian, but a psychologist as well, Steve, <laughs> Steve Israel. Listen, Murphy, this week... Uh, or was it last week, uh, Americans for Prosperity, the outfit that the, uh, uh, that the Koch brothers, now Charles Koch, uh, runs, uh, said they won't be supporting Trump. They didn't support him last time, but they said they'd be actively working for someone else. All those forces seem to be gathering right now. Well, exactly. As you know, for three years I've been saying I don't think Trump will be the nominee followed by a chorus of snorts from my Democratic pals, Axelrod and Gibbs. But you can you can see the glacier melting and the Cokes not on board. And they haven't been on board Trump for a while, but they've kind of made it official. The Club for Growth. A lot of these conservative groups that spend significant money in campaigns are migrating away you know, from Trump. Now, you could say rats jumping off a sinking ship because Trump's brand in the Republican Party now uh, is loser. And but he still has a chunk. 
though the chunk is melting. The plurality theory is he has to stay at 37%, and we'll see if that's true. He used to be at 47%. But I don't think it's the most material thing, but it'll count. It's part of it, and it's a tell. But the question is, is there an irreducible core of Trump support? Well, we'll find out. Does all these corporate interests uh, and business interests gathering to defeat him does that actually strengthen him with that core, that irreducible core? Well, I know. Yeah, you've, you've mentioned this before. The theory is the establishment, all the steakhouse eaters and lobbyists are out to get me. And that's not, and I'm not saying that to insult you, Mike, because I know how you feel about <laughs> steakhouses. But yeah, I mean. Well, every time we uh, meet in Chicago and have a meal, it's never at the uh, the vegetarian palace, as I recall. <laughs> uh, I've seen you put away more corned that's, beef. That's, than, Chicago, uh, that's Chicago hospitality, my man. I, I love it. I love it. We, we got to get back. Okay. But I get that. The thing is, Trump shrink is not driven by him trying to bounce off his enemies. It's driven by Trump fatigue, Trump being a loser, and Trump being unable to play the Trump hits like he used to. Also, the party senses Biden is vulnerable because he's old, and another old guy gives an uneasy feeling. He doesn't fit the problem they're trying to solve, which is why DeSantis, a younger culture warrior, will we'll get a good look. Now, whether or not he can survive the second or third look is a huge open question. And then there's the question, we both are believers in kind of the rotation theory. Will a more optimistic conservative, like a Tim Scott, who I think could own that category, uh, catch on late? All big open questions, we need a campaign to answer them. Which is exactly why Donald Trump's strategic imperative is getting as many people as he can onto right. that stage. Yeah. Getting as many as possible. I've said it before. He may not command a majority of Republicans right now. He commands a plurality, I believe. The more people in the race, uh, the harder it is for uh, for them to beat him. And then, of course, you have Christy Nome. Uh, maybe Liz Cheney gets in. God, Tulsi Gabbard is talking about it. Uh, I think you have a, a quite a large number of Republicans getting in, and Trump just loves that. Yeah, I agree. But in, in 2016, I spent a lot of time in the Jeb Super PAC, living in the Republican donor world. And there is, I can feel a tangible movement for donor discipline to give two people a shot at Trump, not seven. Uh, because we have not done the smart thing, which is to adopt Democratic-style proportional delegate rules. Uh, we still have winner-take-all starting in March. A huge mistake. I think the DeSantis people should have pushed through a change, but they were afraid, in my view, stupidly of losing Florida as a winner-take-all state. So bottom line is you're right, but people are very hip to that. And it's going to be, it's going to be hard for a lot of people to raise table stakes. So in the preseason, there will be a thousand. It may narrow quicker. To Steve's point, that's one of the paradoxes here is that the weaker Trump looks and the more inviting it looks to people to jump in, uh, you know, the better for him. And, you know, uh, He's. I, I don't think he is self-aware enough to conspire to make himself look weak, but he's certainly done a lot of things to make himself uh, look vulnerable. Steve, a- any doubt in your mind that Joe Biden will be the nominee of the Democratic Party in uh, 2024? I don't know, but let me ask you a question. You're no, no, man. House. I don't want to answer any questions. You All right, go ahead. <laughs> That's an old politician trick. I recognize that. Under what law of presidential politics uh, does any president who feels that he's accomplishing what he wants to announce quickly that he's going to be a lame duck? Tell me what law has ever suggested that. No, there is it's no a very good political point. incentive for, for Biden, whether he runs or not. There's no political incentive for him mm-hmm. to say, I'm done. And in the absence of a firm declaration, his people, you know this acts, you know this Murph. His people assume he's running, organize, put the structure together. Right, you fill the space. Reach out to donors, yeah. fill that space. And that's exactly what's yeah. going on here. I totally agree, though. I will say, and call me crazy, and it might be true, I think there's a yeah. one out of three chance ultimately he doesn't run uh, by his own choice. Uh, yeah. they're, they're do the placeholder thing till the end of the summer, and then he'll decide. Um, I, I can declare a huge victory here. Because, look, deep down, and some Democrats have written this, running for president at 80 is in some ways a pretty selfish act by him. And there are young talents in the Democratic Party who could run. So I don't think his decision is at all final. And then there's always something happens at that age. So I'm far from certain. He's consistently said, I'm a great respecter of fate. 
Yeah. And I think that was code for what you said. And, you know, look, he was spry up on that platform at the State of the Union. And uh, but, you know, you, these ages is a, is a tricky thing when you get in the upper reaches. And he knows that. So, you know, you, you may be right. I'll say this, and I've said this before here, I think, if he does wait, and if, as Steve suggests, he waits for a long time to make his decision known, if it's not a positive one, uh, he deprives the party of, a, of the kind of primary it needs to find out exactly who that talent is. Totally right. Instead, he puts Kamala Harris into the halfway into the presidency, um, hey. which from a pure Democrat partisan point of view is a little scary because she's not the, the home run hitter uh, that the party ought to need when the stakes are as high as they are now. Steve, uh, Chris Christie said something that Democrats don't want to say uh, on uh, on Stephanopoulos' show on Sunday, and that was that Biden and the party have a Kamala problem because if Biden runs and she's the VP, she will be looked on not just as the, uh, you know, a normal vice president, but as a potential president because uh, the actuarial odds are that, you know, there's a better than normal chance that she, or than usual chance that she could be president. Uh, her ratings are not good, uh, but it's impossible, isn't it, for Biden to switch switch vice presidents uh, midstream here, given the politics of the Democratic Party. It strikes me he's in a bit of a bind here. Uh, impossible, no. Uh, highly problematic, yes. Uh, you know, we don't know what uh, what that looks like. Um, I don't look. I, I I think she's going to. Uh, receive more scrutiny than a vice presidential candidate usually does, assuming mm -hmm. that uh, President Biden uh, does announce that he's running. Uh, but you guys know better than anybody, you know, campaigns are built to resolve uh, ratings and polling problems. And yeah. so uh, I think that that takes care of itself in the long run. Yeah. Although, you know, one of the things that's concerning is she had a campaign in 2020. She began as a co-front runner for president and didn't make it to Iowa. So, you know, it's concerning. And uh, yeah. that concern has continued uh, into her vice presidency. And they have to figure out a way to fix that, because uh, if he runs, she's going to be with him and uh, she is mm -hmm. going to get that scrutiny. One thing I got to tell you guys, they did something very, very good this week, very smart, uh, which is they hired Ben LeBolt to yeah. be the communications director. What? He's out of prison? Yes, no, ben, we like Ben LeBolt. We can't resist teasing him here. He's a former former partner of our of our buddy Robert Gibbs, but also, you know, I worked with him in the White House in the campaign. He was the press secretary for the 2012 Obama campaign. I used to call him Lightning LeBolt because he was always quick and he was always powerful in his responses. And he's very smart strategically. This is a big upgrade for the White House. Uh, and whether Biden runs or not, if he runs, it's going to be very helpful to have LeBolt there. And even if he doesn't, it's going to be very helpful for in, in, in what is a very treacherous political environment to have a guy like that in the White House. So that was a big, big boost. No, I totally agree. Super capable. But even even the magic uh, spin talents of a of a Ben LeBolt, you know, the, the Biden's problem is there are two things that are very hard to fix. Kamala. Everybody agrees they got to fix Kamala, but so far she's been incredibly unfixable. <laughs> you know, sometimes it, all the king's horses and all the king's men. And second, Biden is still eighty uh, and aging, and that that doesn't go away. You don't spin your way out of that. He did great at the State of the Union; that bought him a little time. But that unforgiving clock is ticking, and it's going to be a huge thing. Well, he won't be eighty forever. So uh... <laughs> Reagan was only sixty-nine when he first took office. <laughs> A spring chicken. Your neighbor out there in Nassau County, George oh, Santos. Yes, yeah. yes. We blame you. Has not made a strong debut, I would say, in in Congress. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering how you think this ends. Do you think he serves out his term? I think he's going to try. There are a couple of things going on. And so I'm in the thick of this. He represents the district that uh, most of which I had. 
And for me, this is not just political, it's personal. My former constituents do not have a congressman right now. We're paying him $175,000 to sit in a seat in the House. He does not. He has turned down his committee assignment so that he can clear his name. He's not thinking about his constituents. He's thinking about clearing his name. He has FEC reports, the latest revelation. If it is his name. If it is his name. Latest revelation, $365,000 in unitemized expenditures. Now, let's be fair. On his campaign. On his campaign. Wh- which right. is a legal-ish. I mean, th- that's is, a big vulnerability. Well, let's be fair. That, that could be, you know. Show me an FEC report, and I will show you an occasional mistake. 12% yeah, of yeah, his I, campaign expenditures were unitemized. The typical FEC report is about 1% is right. unitemized. So, Well, in fairness, you know how much, do you know how much it costs to buy a resume? It's very, it's very expensive. expensive. Well, and I was yeah. moved that he spent so much money on the report on uh, uh, Christians against secular humanism. Uh, you can just make your check payable to cash. <laughs> this guy's, uh, his, by the way, his FEC reports deserve like crime scene tape. <laughs> no, it's unbelievable. The guy's a self-parody. You joke, but uh, you know he does have legal exposure here. Huge. And, uh, but you got to be rooting. You got to be rooting for him to hang off. There are two schools of thought on this. Uh, by the first of all, the if he leaves, the only way he leaves is if he voluntarily steps down, or if the Republicans expel him. Either one triggers a special election. The first school of thought is that the Republicans cannot afford a special election. They're likely to lose. It's three to five million dollars. It screws up the narrative. Yeah, it's a Democratic district. Don't you think that's why McCarthy was so slow to condemn him? I do. But now there's a new school of thought that um, they don't want to wait. Well, no, that they don't want to wait until the 24 presidential because a Democrat's going to win. Uh, Democrats will overperform on Long Island. Uh, and so they'd rather they may want to take a gamble in a special with a squeaky clean candidate than wait to lose a seat uh, later on. Bottom line here is that Santos wants to hang on. The guy is un- he, he's unemployable. Who's going to hire this guy? He needs the congressional salary. Yeah. They'll hang on to him. He'll hang on till the uh, 24 and then the Republicans will run somebody else and a Democrat will run. Yeah, no, no, this this is correct. The, but the wink is that it's so close right now in the House that a special election means the Democrats probably almost certainly win. And a 2024 thing means they're even 20% more likely to win. Now, if the Democrats were willing to support a Republican, so it wouldn't change the Congress, we'd just get the vermin vermin out. You could cut a deal, but they're never going to do that. They want the seat. And so there's a lot of politics under all the halos on this one. I don't exactly see the impetus for Democrats to cut that deal. No, no, they want the seat. Right now, they trade their kids for a seat. So would the Republic. I mean, we're in that situation. They need so a what they would like to do is put them in a coma and just hold them there. Who needs a candidate, Steve? Well, the Democrats need a candidate. Uh-huh. Right. Well, who do we know who used to represent that district and is a novelist, a world citizen, a <laughs> successful small business? Yeah, yeah, this is it. It begins here. Two more years. Only if you guys pay for uh, my divorce lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk. Um, before we jump to the questions, Steve, what do you see? You know, it's, I think it was 1948 was the last time that an incumbent party, a party with the White House that lost the House in the previous election, regained control of the House. It's it's unusual, but so is a a four vote majority. Um, What's your, uh, what's your uh, Yoda like analysis of the Democratic chances to retake the House in 2024? And and you have to put it in Yoda speak now. I, the I, I don't do Yoda. He looks like, he looks a little like Yoda there with the, those head, headphones on. Two to the house they will go. That's right. Uh, you know, you mentioned 1948. I'm going to be a little more recent. Uh, I'm going to go to 2010. Remember, President Obama's job approval uh, in that office, awful Tea Party year was in the mid 40s, 46 on a good day, higher than Biden's, but not vastly higher. And the Tea Party came to town in 2010, and they focused on investigations and subpoenas and talking about impeachment. And two things happened within the next two years. First, the economy recovered. Economy got stronger under President Obama. And secondly, those moderate voters in those battleground states realized that that Republican House of Representatives was so focused on the dais that they forgot what people were talking about at their kitchen tables. They weren't talking about the economy. They were talking about investigating Obama. And as a result, your guy, David, uh, won 
eight out of nine presidential battleground states and their Democrats clawed back eight seats. I think we're looking at that environment and the Democrats don't need eight seats in 24. So I think the prospects are good based on a more recent read of history. One of, one of the problems for McCarthy is that he has so empowered the Marjorie Taylor Greens and that whole group uh, that uh, they are getting disproportionate attention and running into the same into the same trap that you describe uh, from from the past. Let me ask you, though, uh, our our uh, our buddy Dave Wasserman wrote a piece which you probably saw this week about what's going on in North Carolina and Ohio, where Republican Supreme Courts uh, have replaced majority Democratic Supreme Courts in the last election. He's and therefore and our you know in North Carolina they ordered a review of the map that is now seven seven there, uh, and uh, in Ohio some of that may be expected as well. His his analysis was that they could pick up seven seats in those two states just by dint of what the Supreme Court does in those states. And you know you spend a lot of time looking at this stuff. Is that a, a fair surmise? You know, I'm not so sure. Um, you know, remember the narrative going into redistricting in uh, in 2020 was, you know, oh my God, you know, Democrats are going to get wiped out in redistricting. It ended up being a what? One of my favorite moments. I can't tell you who this was, but I was talking to a very high-ranking uh, House Republican uh, about redistricting when I was chair, and uh, uh, I was talking about how state courts, Democratic state courts, uh, would rule favorably on some maps, and he just looked at him and he said, "Hey, Israel." You got your courts. We got our courts. That is so true. <laughs> I like to call these elected courts in North Carolina, Ohio, the will of the people. You know, what happened last time is everybody thought in the growing states, the Republicans would gerrymander and gain seats. But it happened in the Democratic states, even if they weren't gaining seats, the Democratic legislators were more than happy to, you know, take care of their own and squeeze the other way. So I, I don't I never believe the big thumb conspiracy is going to change everything. I do believe that we're in a political era now where history is a bit decoupled. So like yeah. we've never had this happen and anything can happen now. It is coupled to the presidential race. Dems yes. do well, the House is close enough they could pop it and vice versa. Because the problem the Republicans have are the Republicans. The problem the Democrats have could be the Democrats. So coin toss. Next Tuesday is a primary in the Supreme, this is apropos to this discussion, a Supreme Court race in Wisconsin that could flip the Wisconsin Supreme Court in favor of the Republicans. That could have significant impact in the swingiest of swing states yep. uh, in the country. So we'll have more to say about that. But now I, I will just tell you that the Chicago mayor's primary uh, is uh, the uh, the first round is, is uh, February 27th. There are nine candidates. Uh, right now, polling has three who are contending for the two spots to go into the runoff. And uh, the latest was in the Chicago, Chicago Sun-Times had Congressman Chewy Garcia first, uh, Paul Vallis, the former school superintendent, second. He's running as the cop candidate. He's white and going taking that path. And he has got really no one in his yeah. lane. And so he's doing pretty well. Uh, and then the mayor's was running third in that poll, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. It's still very possible that she doesn't make the runoff, which is kind of astounding. What about the teachers union guy who's on TV now? They're pushing a, a lake pole, showing him surging into a second tie. Yeah, that poll doesn't exactly square with others. But there was a debate last night in which the mayor went after him hard, which tells me that she's concerned about it. At the very least, he's taking votes that she needs. He may be taking some votes that Chewy Garcia uh, needs. Brandon Johnson is his name. But anyway, more on this as that day approaches. But let, let me just get out of this with a question for you, Yoda of Chi-Town, yes. complete with the appropriate baseball camp yes. right now. Yes, yes. I think Ballas has a great lane to get into the runoff. But is the white guy running against crime, shaking hands with cops on TV, will he have a ceiling and hard to get all the way? I think it's a very good question. And that's the one that uh, our buddy Joe Trippi and Mark Melman, who are running his campaign, are obviously focused on because in his first ad, he was careful to talk about being a lifelong Democrat, pictured himself with Barack Obama, said that he had advised the Obama uh, Justice Department uh, on uh, uh, the, the Obama Justice Department on criminal 
justice issues, on public safety issues. No one in the Obama Justice Department seems to remember that. Uh, so Vows could earn the George Santos Award for that particular ad. But they did it for a reason. Oh, I, I think we're going to put you down as undecided on no, I, no, no, he's a friend of mine. But yeah. they, they did that, be, and they keep branding him and branding him as a lifelong Democrat for that. just the reason you're suggesting. They don't want yeah. to get in the same box that uh, your friend Rick Caruso got in to some degree in uh in los angeles and uh we'll see if he's successful i think it's gonna be a really fascinating it's gonna be um, a fascinating piece. runoff yeah. I, I've, I've got a miracle ad that can change everything for him so i'll i'll call melman we got to do this though yes this is fun for the 200th time less those times when we forgot to do it we're gonna go to the mailbag If you have a question for the mailbag, send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com. That magic address, hacksontap at gmail.com. Let me start with you, Murphy. Okay. uh, Because Nate is eager for your wisdom. And he says, many think that if Trump loses the GOP primary, he will sabotage whoever does win. Basically, that he'll take the party down with him. I think Trump would cut a deal in which he supports the nominee in exchange for a promise of a pardon. You think he'd do something? like? What do you think? What? Trump make the cynical move to save his ass? Nate, you're <laughs> on to something. I think he would try to make a deal. And it's a very au courant. Oh, yeah. there, there you go, uh, Axe. Good wine and cheese word to I you. I love when you speak French. Pepe Murphy, yet another voter in the Chicago primary. So, Nate, I <laughs> think there's a lot of conventional wisdom now that Trump will destroy any Republican who wins. I actually have a contrarian view as usual. I think if Trump is weak enough to lose the nomination, should he run, which I think, I know he's running, but if he really runs, I think he will then become such a rear view mere loser that a lot of sour grapes about the Republican that the party is coalescing by makes him look like a Democratic attack surrogate. And the loser sore will not have the grip in the general. And I don't think it's any guarantee that what what little is left of Trump rotting in a garbage can after he loses a nomination will have enough power to get a bunch of Republicans to go vote for Joe Biden or whoever the Democrat may be or to sit out the election. So I think it will not it'll be a small factor in a tight election. Who knows? But it will not be the big sledgehammer people presume it is right now. You know what? You are a man of hope and uh, dreams. Hope springs eternal. I think the idea that Trump goes quietly into the night is a a fantasy. Not quietly, just ineffectively. Noisy, but ineffective. No, I don't know. He he doesn't have to be effective with more than a a small percentage of his his voters. And, you know, I think it's a real fear. I think the Biden folks are kind of betting on that either Trump will be the nominee or he'll blow up whoever is. And uh, I don't think that's a I don't think that's a bad bet as to the pardon thing. It's it it's uh, makes sense in theory. It's it's maybe harder to execute, but we shall see. And I'll tell you, if, if you're if you're the Republican beats him in the primary, yeah, maybe you don't want him to get a pardon. Maybe you want him to rot and burn in jail and get out of your life. Yeah, you got one for me. Yes, I do. This is number four from the ever clever Sarah. Was it a missed opportunity for the Biden team to only offer Fox an interview on their little known streaming channel, Fox Soul? And was it a poor decision on Fox's part to cancel the interview? All this surrounding the Super Bowl, a traditional time where the president does kind of a feel good interview. What say you, Oracle Axelrod? Thank you, Sarah, or... um uh, as should I say, former uh, former Fox personality and now Governor Sarah, <laughs> they made a calculation. They did not want to sit down uh, with Bre- Brett Baer. Uh, Obama did it twice with Bill O'Reilly. Uh, it worked out fine, in part because you know he he was a guy who could banter about the game. Biden could have done that as well. I think they thought it was a high risk uh, a high risk. Uh, uh, proposition so they in front of 100 million people so they turned it down i i think it was an opportunity so it would have been a hard choice for me uh but i i don't think i would have done the second thing is they went to they they got a little too cute by half they went yeah. to the fox streaming channel fox soul which i think has like seven thousand listeners and offered to do a game day uh interview and fox uh squashed that so yeah i uh close call I probably would have done it, but uh, I understand why they didn't. Yeah, grab the mic. Don't be a chicken. 
Uh, so now the mega question. Actually, you want to ask it? I do. Uh, and this is from Andrew. And I think we all ought to answer this before Steve does. Do you think Israel matters when it comes to U.S. general elections, excluding primaries? I have to say, I don't think there's a person in America whose word I take more seriously than Steve Israel when it comes to general elections. So I would have to say, yes, Israel is important. But uh, but Steve, I think they may be referring to the country. I'm not sure. So the, the Middle Eastern democracy named after you. Oh, that Israel. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. that Israel. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, yes. That changes my whole answer. We're all pro-Israel here. Yeah. It's a factor, but not the only factor. The the American Jewish vote is largely misunderstood and uh, and often stereotyped. Uh, the, look, Jewish voters tend to be left of center, tend to be moderate. About seventy percent will vote typically for a, a Democratic presidential candidate, but their views are not influenced solely by Israel. And in fact, right. as you've seen, increased anti-Semitism uh, in the country, more hate crimes, an erosion of democracy. Uh, those tend to factor into their consideration. So, Andrew, yes, but not only. And it's not monolithic Democratic anymore. Our friend Matt That's Brooks, right. the Republican Jewish Coalition, is already typing me a telegram, so I'm going to preempt it. Uh, there, there has been Republican. You're growth. the only guy who still gets telegrams, but <laughs> they work anyway. But I do, I do want to say this. I agree with everything you said, Steve. I do wonder how American Jews are going are processing what's going on in Israel right now, mm-hmm. uh, being strongly supportive of democracy and proud as I am, as you probably are, as American Jews, of the robust democracy that Israel has been since its inception. And now we've got a, you know a move by by Bibi Netanyahu now returned to power with a very slim majority to really rewrite. Uh, the rules of uh, Israel, Israeli democracy, and empower the prime minister and and uh, against really the judicial system against there, the, yeah. yeah, which I, I think yeah. has has potentially really really negative consequences for Israel around the world and maybe even with American Jews. I agree. And by the way, you just saw the largest political protest in Israel's history uh, in Jerusalem, focused on uh, Netanyahu and his government's uh, attempts to weaken the judiciary. This is really tearing Israel apart. The uh, Meyer Lapid, uh, the former uh, yes. leader of Israel, said that he's concerned that they're facing a civil war. The president of Israel went on national television to talk about these divisions. And so this is a serious problem for Israel. I don't know that it translates into how American Jewish voters are motivated. Though I'm sitting down this week, I'm sitting down tomorrow with uh, Tom Nides, the U.S. ambassador oh, to great. Israel. He's so I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to uh, asking mm-hmm. him about these issues uh well no you got a little bit of a captain ahab thing with netanyahu too because his experience with the judicial system is hands-on from the defendant's box and and that really calls into question the motives for such a big switch but yeah under indictment yes back here in the u.s of a as we said the 200th episode of hacks on tap and our our staff has decided to humiliate us. As you know, we often do ads. Don't we do that ourselves? Right, right. That's the problem. There's tape. Uh, We don't need help. So there's uh, some of our brilliant ad reads. We're we're known, frankly, as as, uh, nationally respected voiceover guys. We we, uh, (laughs) sell stuff, and uh, we do it with a stumbling uh, and affecting manner. So we've done a little greatest hits tape of some of the finest moments of Hacks on Tap ad reading here you go oh shit you better read the top of this <laughs> you're going to me for the the hair tonic plug you you can exactly because well, friends we, well neither neither yeah. of us have, have hair so go ahead yeah friends let me tell you about the cure for baldness a magic formula from dr axelrod's <laughs> laboratory it works i guarantee it i wouldn't steer you wrong all right we take payola all right here we go doing it hey axe yo and for this month only, a free Mensa scholarship, if you can remember that URL code. We thank we Magic thank Spoon. Magic Spoon. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go you ahead. want to try it together? We want to try Harmony here? No. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Steve, why don't we get into your bookstore to do a live hack? Whenever you hack. want. We would love you. Come on, yeah. let's make it happen. It'll be fun. You can go on the road. Murphy, are you going to be? Are you are you going to be in New Hampshire in the summer? Yeah, in August I'll be around. So maybe we can come yeah, down. Yeah, we're figuring out a way to a, make a that happen. We yeah, will make it, it huge for do you. Do we have to waive yeah. the hundred grand fee? I guess we do, right? 
we, well, yeah, but we're going to walk out of there with a boatload of books. I'll tell I, you. I, yeah. I, I can right. I can give you ten percent off all. Uh, <laughs> okay, all we're in. <laughs> we're in. Do you have an adult section? You could have gotten a job in my grandfather's uh, shoe store. Anyway. <laughs> I have a cousin in the business. Listen, Steve Israel, always great to have you. You come back many times. I I love it. Meanwhile, everybody should should visit Theodore's bookstore. And by the way, you should run. You should run. We could use you. Uh, Yeah. No, thank you. (laughs) Been there, done that. Who needs the spouse who's been by your side through (laughs) thick and thin? That's right. Right. Yeah, honey. Let's do it again. Yeah. (laughs) All right, guys. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Bye.